Let's let's start. Let's start. Melody, can you guys see all right? Could it counterclockwise just a slight bit, can you, Bob? No, the other, the, there, thanks, thanks. Let's start. Um, before, we, before we do prayers, it'll give um, people a few minutes to come in. Um, I hope you, I'm trusting you all got my note about um, Holy Week. I, I thought about meeting because you know, <laughs> once I get going, it's hard to stop me on this stuff, but I, I think it would be really good on Holy Week to take Holy Week off. So even if it slows down our reading or interrupting, it's a, it's a good time to focus on the church. I know there's lots of activities, um, talks and things like that and retreats and so, and it's Holy Week anyway. Part of me believes that it's good. I mean, we're dealing with something at the heart of the church, so, but let's take it off, okay? My question to everybody here, and that includes everybody online, is what to do about the week after Easter. Do you want to meet that Tuesday or wait a week? Because I know that kids are in and out, traveling, you know, going back to school, and I don't know what your activities are like. Um, but do you want to meet then or cancel that? I'm, I'm glad to do either. We're, we're, I'm not in any rush to finish. Do you want to meet the Tuesday or take that week off as well? Your will. I'm around. Well, let me put it differently. Can anybody not make it that Tuesday? We don't have a life. <laughs> don't have what? What you say? We are too. We are too. And you, and you know I live in a cave, so this may be the one exception. God, I'm going I'm to start locking the doors for, for some of the people around here. And I'm only thinking of two of them. Come up here where I can reach you. Just made it in time for prayers. Good for you. She, she's got a lot of something. What it? We just we just had a quick talk about canceling Holy Week, so we're not meeting on Holy Week, and we're meeting the week after, unless anybody can't make it, and we'll put it off. So we'll plan to meet the week after. And let me say, because you know, I, and I know Mary has to get out of here, and I'm planning to be on time. Um, all of you have a good rest of Lent, um, genuinely, I, I, um, and I'm saying that from my heart. Suzanne and I took on something hard for us. I mean, we'd always give up something, you know, but this, this year we gave up wine. It's been one of the hardest things I've ever done. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm so used to just, you know, after four o'clock, before dinner, I'll go have some wine. After dinner, we'll have, you know, and if things get tight somewhere, I'll go get a glass of wine. 
I, I, I find myself constantly going to the fridge and having to stop myself and go back. If I would have known that, I would have brought you a bottle tonight. <laughs> See, I would have, I would have, and we're not eating, we're not eating dessert, so I was not even going over there to that counter and look at what you all brought. Yeah. Maybe that's a reason not to make the week after, like the kids that eat all the chocolate on Easter Sunday. We'll bring wine that time. Oh, good. Um, actually, because you guys throw a good party, you, let's start. Get food and wine out of it. Here, right? Um, all of you have um, a good remainder of Easter, truly, because I'm going to speak to that when we start. But have a good Holy Week, a blessed Holy Week. Wherever there are deep spiritual struggles, God bless you on them all. You have our prayers. You all know that. And have a good Easter. Have a blessed Easter, okay? In the Greek church in which I was raised, they would always say, Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. And the response would be, Alethos Anesti, yes, he's risen. So year after year, we celebrate a renewal. I mean, it isn't like he was born. That's, but every, every Easter, we celebrate his dying and rising. So let's start, because I'm going to include that in my prayer. Any prayers for tonight? I have a high school friend who just lost his wife suddenly. What's her name? Nadine. Nadine. Yeah. What's his name? Eldon. Eldon. Yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. It's so strange. So it's such an ungrateful world. I mean, truly, that we live in. If we're not born, there's nothing there. There's no consciousness to be aware. We didn't have it before we were born. Um, nobody who's not born is conscious of anything. There's nothing there. We're only conscious, and one of the crosses that we bear is our consciousness. We can drink too much wine, or take drugs, or you know, do whatever we do to try to escape being conscious of things, because being conscious is a burden. It's an awful burden. Um, for our life, um, thank you um, for even the um, graces of the burdens that we um, face. For your presence through the day, and I ask for a special blessing on this class and all that we're doing together. There are deep matters here um, that go directly to our faith, um, to good and evil. The depths of evil are almost unsurpassed here. I, they don't go any deeper unless you go to Dante or Shakespeare. Um, we're being asked to look at past surfaces to awful things. Um, what a great gift to us there's a burden that comes with that because it means looking at our own, the depths of our own sins, our own evil, inwardly. Um, I ask a special grace in this Easter season that in ever, whatever ways we have been encouraged to see ourselves, to grow in self-knowledge, that, um, that that only happens, you allow it on the trust that you will give us the graces needed to face those depths, to see ourselves as we are, to um, always trust in you, to be glad, to turn to you more and more. So we offer these prayers of thanksgiving and ask for your blessing through Holy Week and on Easter Day when 
we celebrate again your death and um, um, your resurrection. I ask for a special bl blessing. I'm sorry, Bob. Her name is for, uh, Nadine. Nadine and, and Elvin. Elvin. Yeah. Um, receive Nadine into your kingdom. Um, let our prayers for her be an unexpected blessing, or maybe expected. Um, so often we don't know who's praying for us. There's lots of people whose prayers go to us that we don't know about. Um, receive our prayers on her behalf. Um, wash away her sins. Um, let her enter into the fullness of the joy that has been a longing in her life, whether she ever identified it that way or not. And be with, it's Elvin? Elden. Elden be with her husband in his loss. Let this be a time of growing in his faith, even if it's painful. Um, help him to find some comfort in you in whatever loss he feels, um, whatever pain he's experiencing. I ask for a special blessing on our son Christopher and his daughter um, Sienna, who just entered into something new for both of them. Um, it's full of hope and um, let a great blessing go with them and all that moves them forward. And I ask for prayers for Suzanne and for me, always. Um, help us to um, complete the work you've given to us, to receive the graces um, that we need to, um, to finish this work, to do your will. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, we've got Easter settled, I think. Um, the poem that I wanted to do tonight um, is one of Hopkins' poems. We, Before we started Moby Dick, I deliberately... Um, you won't have the dark, it, the Hopkins poem won't be there, but the notes for tonight will be. Um, <clears throat> the Hopkins poem, I think I gave you again a couple of weeks ago, so it would be several weeks back. Or from your poetry packet, it's in the packet at home, so if you don't have it, get it out and look at it when you go home. But it's, remember that when, before we started Moby Dick, I read a couple of the Hopkins poems that were real affirmations of God. Um, God's grandeur and spring. Um, they're wonderful celebrations of God's work in the world and affirming. And I read them because I knew we were going to get into dark waters once we got into Moby Dick. Now I'm going to read one of his dark poems. Remember he was a Catholic priest, a convert from Anglicanism. Um, he was actively involved in the, what was called the Tractarian Movement in the 19th century. It was lots of Anglicans who gathered together to write tracts in the hope that it would help renew the church because when they looked around at the Anglican church, the high English church, they were troubled that it had become so lax, so liberal. It's just one more crisis in our faith. Hopkins was Anglican. He was raised Anglican. John Henry Newman was another one of the Tractarians. He converted and so did Hopkins. And Hopkins became a priest and his family disavowed him. They were so upset, as you can imagine, becoming Catholic in England. It's just unheard of. Um, 
He went on to be one of the greatest innovators in poetic language, in the lyric tradition. What he did was nothing short of amazing. Very wise men, like most good poets, he had an extraordinary wisdom, a great grasp of the English tradition. What he did was go back to Anglo-Saxon literature. We've only done a couple of poems there. We've never done it enough for, probably for you to remember, but just briefly, Anglo-Saxon poetry had um, what they called an alliterative. Alliteration means the alliterate, repeating the same town or sound. I found my friend feckless and feeble, or I found my friend feckless and something. Usually, three, three consonants alliterate, repeat the same sound, um, in, in two halves of a line. So the line was divided in half. You could have any number of syllables. That's very different from the traditional English line, Shakespeare's and Dunn's and others that we read, because um, they're determined by the number of syllables. So in an iambic pentameter line, we had 10 syllables per line. Very musical. The root was music. Five beats, two, two, two syllables per line, per, per foot. Two, four, six, eight, ten. All of Shakespeare's sonnets, all of Dunn's. So there was a strong sense of a, of a rhythm, a music, a beat to Shakespeare, to John Dunn, some of the other poets. Um, supernatural love, which is a modern. What Hopkins did was go back to Old English verse, which was heavily alliterated, and combined it with um, iambic pentameter. And he created a different kind of rhythm. It was his effort, what he called a sprung rhythm, to kind of help the line spring into life, to try to give a voice to poetry, because it was becoming too, formula too formulaic, too mechanical, the way it does you know, in all the arts. So it's a, it's a different beat, but I only want to say that because to note him, what he did was exceptional and unheard of. So he stayed in a traditional line, but he changed it, moved it forward. So he accepted the tradition, worked with it, but did something nobody had ever done before. Okay. And um, I'm reading from the sheet I gave you a couple of weeks ago called Hopkins' Dark Poems. There's two of them that are notable. One's called No Worse There Is None, and the other is I Wake and Feel the Fell of Dark, Not Day. So this is Hopkins facing despair. Um, he's Catholic, he's a Catholic priest, he's probably one of the most sensitive Catholics that ever has written. He's done extraordinary things in poetry. We've read the, um, some of the more affirmative. You remember the Wind Hover, because that's the most famous. Remember, um, I caught this morning, mornings, I caught this morning, morning, morning's minion. Then he goes on to describe the wind hover and then it suddenly catches the wind and stops and buckles. And in that moment, he sees a relationship between the wind hover buckling and Christ on the cross buckling. And out of that buckling comes this extraordinary glory. Okay. These are two of his dark poems. Um, when I get home tonight, I'll send an email to you if you don't have them with an attachment. Okay. I'm reading only one of them called No Worst There Is None. Gerard Manley Hopkins. No worst there is none. Pitch past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, 
wilder ring. Whatever it is now, it will get worse. The darkness will deepen. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? It's Christ. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Remember, he knows, I'm going to start this over again because I shouldn't be doing these comments. I don't like interrupting Paul. The center of his life is Christ on the cross. He turns to him for comfort, and he knows if he turns to him in, for solace when he's suffering, <laughs> it's going to take him to the middle of the cross. It's not like enablers today are going to say, everything will be better tomorrow. You know, be cheerful, cheer up. He's, you'll see in the poem, he's not going to allow that. So he's got Christ, that's who he gave his life to when he became a priest. It defines everything he does. No worse there is none. No worse there is none. Pitch past pitch of grief. More pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. It will ring more out of me. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddle in a main, a chief woe, world's sorrow, on an age-old anvil, wince and sing, then low and leave off. Fury had shrieked, no lingering, let me be fell, force I must be brief. O oh, the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathom, hold them cheap. May, who ne'er hung there. People who've never had to go to those depths won't think much of them. Nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. It's like he takes consolation that it'll be over, but he knows there may be more again. Um, remember, Hopkins uses the Italian sonnet, the first eight lines, the two quatres, four, four rhyming lines, two sets of four lines. In the quatrain, the, uh, in the Italian sonnet, he always gives an immediate experience, the bird flying, the pain he feels, whatever it is, spring. He, he gives an exact rendering the way literature does. It takes us back to the world for us to experience it as we do, no abstractions, no ideas. We're back in real life. But the sestet that always follows it is a reflection. So it's the mind reflecting back on an experience, bringing something to it that the mind can, okay? Here, one more time and then I'll... No worse there is none, pitch past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddle in a main, a chief woe, world's sorrow, on an age-old anvil wince and sing, then low, then leave off. Fury had shrieked, shrieked, no lingering, let me be fell, force I must be brief. O the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathom, hold them cheap, May who ne'er hung there, nor does long or small durance deal with that steep or deep. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. Okay. Let's start. 
I want to do a, just a very quick review tonight um, and then get on to those chapters um, after the town ho gam, remember? But just a couple of notes first. Up to this point, we've been reading a work that I think is probably one of the most, not, is one of the most important works of American literature um, that have been written. Mid-19th century, it's in the middle of a crisis um, in which the Christian faith, faith, which was the founding faith of America, is in crisis. Because that Christian faith has come up against a scientific way of reading the world that is completely different and in lots of ways opposite. Science cannot know God. It cannot know beginnings and ends. It cannot. It pretends like it can, it can't. It cannot know God and it cannot know evil. So a Christian faith is um, staggering. It's, um, it's lived, it's a Protestant world through and through. We've seen that from the beginning to, to the point when the ship takes off for sea. It's a Protestant world and it's full of failings, hypocrisies everywhere. And when the Pequod sets out to sea, what Melville is doing is using the sea as a literary, an appropriate literary metaphor for all those things that are mysterious, sources of evil, sources of grace. It's at sea that Melville, through Ishmael, and what happens to Ahab, will reveal the problems, what's wrong back in New England, okay? There's something wrong with the faith. Um, it's not just that people are not living it, which is a human failing always. We all have that struggle. It's that there's something wrong with the theology, and it gets worked out with Ahab. So um, the, you, the opening chapters, you know, um, show us the, a failed Christianity, and we go out to see and discover exactly what's going on through Ahab and his tragedy. The sea is an image of a metaphysical reality. It's indefinite. In repeated passages, Ishmael makes clear, the sea is not our home. We don't belong there. We belong on land. But occasionally we have to go to sea to understand things that we've taken for granted on land. Changes need to take place. We have to face some things that we'd rather not face. So it's a place of trial. It's an ordeal. And it's a place of change and self-discovery. Um, Ishmael's going to have multiple moments of self-discovery. Um, now tonight, I'm, I want to I cover a couple of things in review, but just to, to go ahead to, to point out where we're going. Last week, when we finished, we had just looked at the town host story, and you remember that the story was amazing. It was a story about Steel Kilt and um, his mate. And Steel Kilt um, started a mutiny when his mate asked him to do something, he refused to do it. Um, they revolted, they formed a mutiny, they took over the ship, they lost it again. And Steel Kilt got whipped in punishment. And he told the captain and the first mate if they lifted a hand against him and whipped him, he would kill them. And they did. Um, when the first mate come, came on board and the, chack, the captain chickened out, he took it in his own hands and whipped him. And because he was punished, Steel Kilt was released. Um, and um, in that state of being released, he watched for an opportunity to kill the first mate. 
So he was making a net and a ball, presumably to hit him and knock him overboard. And then something happened. The town host sighted Moby Dick and they went after him. And in their pursuit, the, the whale took out Radney, the first mate. So Ishmael, when he records it, talks about it's being one of those moments um, of a, I can't remember how he put it, it was beautifully put, I'll, I'll come to it when we do the reading, but it was a, um, a, 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 a turn in providence that God had intervened on behalf of a man to save him from being damned. And that's a crucial story, as you, as you can tell by the story, because Ishmael's on his He's, in fact, he's already damned himself. We saw, remember, in the quarter deck and in the sunset, Ishmael says, or I mean, Ahab says, I'm damned. And the sun goes down, and we're to understand the light goes out of his soul. That's a moment when he, when he gives himself up to being damned and blames everything on Moby Dick. In the town host story, we get a story of a man still killed who was going to kill a man, and by an act seemingly of chance, um, providentially, Moby Dick takes out um, the first mate and still killed his saved. So by an act of divine providence, through Moby Dick, a man is saved from damnation. So you can see the tension there. Ahab has is, is got it clear in his mind that, that, that Moby Dick is this agency of a divine malice. That metaphysically, whatever, you, whatever else you say about the divine order, there's an evil in it. And I'll come to that in a second. We've gone over this. Um, there's an evil in that order. And I've suggested it comes from Calvin, from the, one of the most important Protestant divines. Calvin held that some men were predestined to damnation and the others were predestined to um, salvation. Man had no free will. It's, it's absolutely crucial to see that. No free will. He's either damned or saved. And even if he does stupid things while he's saved, God's will is irresistible. That man will end up in heaven. Okay? Wait one second. So if some men are predestined to damnation because of some evil, where did that evil come from? It wasn't by an act of the man. It, it seems to imply, impute an evil in God. Where else did that evil come from? It's like a positive evil working itself out in life. And that's what outrages Ahab. That, that he should be a product of that world. And there's something in him good enough, decent enough, I'm going to come back to this, good enough to rebel against it. The trouble is that in his rebellion, he goes to the dark side. He damns his soul in, in order to carry out this vengeance. Okay? Connie, go ahead. You want to... I was just wondering, it's not a silly question, but how do, you, how do they know who's damned and who's not? Boy. <laughs> I mean, how do you say, like, when, you, when you're growing up, if you're acting, you know, evil, you're, I mean... <laughs> Connie, that's such a good... Well, and here, let me make it even harder. How do you know for a Catholic when you're taking the sacraments and you do all you should and maybe there's something evil going on in your mind. I mean, I, you know, there's one answer to, and I'm not going to give that up right now, but, but it's, a, it's a good question. Re remember to, this is not going to answer your question, but I hope it will show you how complicated it is. Hawthorne is struggling with the same question. The, he deals with, this, in short a letter, he's dealing with the founding generation. Everybody comes here to found a new order. 
the right religion. It's, they're turn, they've turned away from the Catholic Church because in their minds that was the Antichrist. The Catholic Church was the Antichrist. They came to found a new order of Christianity. That's America's, the northern founding, not the southern, but the northern. Hawthorne goes back to that founding in Scarlet Letter. And early on we learned that there was a schism in that group. Anne Hutchinson said, I'm not going to follow your laws anymore because I'm following the Spirit. And the Spirit means being above laws, you follow him, not the laws of a community. And the rest of the community said, evidence that you're saved is conformity to our laws. That's partly the answer. And Connie, I'm saying it, hoping everybody will see how true that is today in our world. Because what it did was produce a conformist tendency in America and an adversarial other. Today that adversarial tends to be celebrities, you know, crooks, whatever they are. I mean, it's just an ad, they're saying hypocrites. You know, you live like you're righteous and are saved, but altogether you're hypocritical. That division is still with us. So it's not an easy, but, and, I, and we're going to get to it in a second, and it, it's going to complicate it even farther. But tough question to, but that is what they were dealing with, okay? Ahab is, what makes his action tragic is that he was such a good man. All tragic heroes have to have something noble in them, or we won't feel the fall, the tragic fall. We won't feel the pity or fear. That's Aristotle. Those are the two tragic emotions that have to be cleansed. That person has Oedipus, Othello, you go where you will. They're all good men. But something happens to turn them, or we wouldn't feel sorry for them, the pity. And it has to be purged, cleansed, that, because pity and fear are enabling, arresting emotions. Um, so we're going to go from the townhouse story in which we get the, the counterpoise, the counterweight of the Ahab story. Here's a story of um, Moby Dick doing something that actually saved a man from damnation. Does Ahab see that? No. And Ishmael makes it clear that when the townhouse story is communicated to the um, Pequod crew, the captain doesn't know about it. The townhouse captain doesn't know about it. Ahab never learns about it. So he never has, and the, it, you know, would it have changed his mind if he had heard it anyway? Um, so we, we left off last week with the town of story. What I want to do is concentrate on all those chapters from there to the, um, um, to the next gam, the Jeroboam, and a couple of chapters. I'm going to go quickly through them tonight because it's going to go to the question that um, Melody raised last week. What's going on with Ishmael? You know, um, because I'm going to put it this way, and then I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop again and ask the question again. I don't want an answer now. From the town hoe to the Jeroboam, to the shark massacre and stub killing a whale, nothing happens. It's Ahab with all these reflections. I'm going to go through them right now. There's, we have a dozen chapters. I'm going to rush through them. Nothing happens. But I'm going to ask, what's the action of that sequence? Because up to the quarter deck scene, you know that everything was moving towards going out to sea. And after the quarter deck, everybody gets um, involved in Ahab's quest. So the action reaches a pitch. It's a turning point. Because at that point, the whole ship is committed to killing Moby Dick. But at this time, after the 
Town Ho, all we've got are these long chapters of Ishmael's meditating on whales. So I want to ask the question, what's the action? Nothing's going on. And I hope you hear the irony of that. Remember when we did uh, Supernatural Love? You know, when the girl was sewing? And I said, nothing's going on. She's sewing and pricked herself. Who cares? So what? And yet, we saw in that pricking the crucifixion. So what's going on here with Ishmael in these chapters, okay? Now, that's the question. I, I want to do um, a quick a quick glance over review. If you look at my notes, the ship, we said, is an image of a business enterprise going out to sea. The great irony is that it's supported by Quakers, by Protestants, who see themselves as very passive, quiestic, calm people. But they're described, remember, this is on my notes, they are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. That's, page, that's chapter 16, again chapter 16. Though peaceful in his belief, Bildad spilled tons and tons of gore, but it did not seem to concern him much, and very probably had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion, and you can hear Bildad's tone in there. That's not Ishmael. That's Bildad sort of excusing himself. The sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing and his practical world quite another. The world for the Protestant is divided. He's committed to making money, to making his life secure and settled. And I'm going to say the modern Catholic is faced with that temptation on a scale that I don't ever, I don't believe has ever existed. That's America, because America is principally a commercial regime. Its end is to make money, to be successful. Now remember when you think about this, because you guys have got a long background. I'd really like your attention on this because I want you to follow this closely. We started with Merchant of Venice. It was the prototype of the commercial regime, modern America. And the conflict was between Antonio as a Christian and Shylock as a Jew. They had two very different ways of reading the world. One of them revolved, involved a risk. One of them involved minimizing the risk and making money. That was Shylock. And remember, the two are brought together in the court battle. I don't want to rehearse that, but we started, and we started with ourselves, the commercial regime. We read Dante. Dante's Commedia was written during the time when Florence, as the first prototype of the commercial regime, along with Venice, was founded. The whole Divine Comedy is a critique of the commercial regime. So, what's that? Thirteen hundred. Six hundred years. Two and, two and a half centuries before America was founded, we've got the finest critique, one of the finest critiques of the commercial regime we've ever had. Because you know that all, God, all, all the scenes that we looked at were in terms of conflicts in the, between church and state in the commercial republic. And remember, most of the people in hell were Catholics. Lots of them were popes and priests and bishops. Um, but the, the point I want to underscore here, and we did Othello, commercial regime, the tragic side. So Merchant of Venice, Venice is the comic, Othello, tragic. Hold on to this. Iago is the most evil person that I've ever encountered in all of my experiences in literature. He's pure evil. Is he tragic? No, because there's nothing good in him to lose. Everything he did was in, 
was destructive. We saw that. Shakespeare is showing us that there's something inherent native to the commercial republic that produces that kind of evil. Remember Iago? But the point I want, the point I want to underscore here is Iago's not tragic. He's pure evil. He can't be. Fadala is pure evil. Can he be tragic? No. Kranahab, yes. Because he really is a good man and his motives when he started were good. He was trying to defend something, the dignity of human free will. So one of the things that we're missing, lots of critics will maintain, and I'm certainly with them, is we, we lack a tragic sense today. Suzanne and I were talking about it, and I can't remember what she did. Today, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't go on the news without seeing somebody blaming somebody else for something. Victims everywhere and blaming, it's the same story. And um, she was saying that you can't even turn for, to sciences today because people don't even believe in the sciences. The sciences contradict themselves a lot. She said it's created all these little gods. That each person is his own god. There's, no, there's only science. And if, you, if you deny that, because science can't give us God anyway. We live in a world in which whatever people believe is real for them. That's reality. There is no reality. That was the thesis of C.S. Lewis's abolition. Um, Iago can't be tragic. Fadala can't be tragic. Ahab is a tragic figure, precisely because there's something really noble in what he's, what he's set out to do. It's absolutely important to see that, or we won't feel what we should about what happens. Okay. Um, what's at issue here is religious belief, and we see early on that Ishmael finds himself turning from it. He's the outcast one. He's Ishmael because he finds there's no place for him in that among the chosen people. Because in their own minds, the Protestants of that age saw themselves as um, the real people of God, that America was going to be devoted to this new world. Ishmael is an outcast. He no longer believes in them. And we see it concretely, remember, when he's worshiping with Queequeg, and he says, what will God have me do? I must turn idolater. He worships with him. And, and the Presbyterians, uh, which is one of the major religions then, looks down on him. Remember, because he spends all this time with this cannibal who's clearly a savage. He's among the regenerate. He's not baptized, so he's probably among the, the damned. Um, one of the things that distinguished, um, and Mary, it's partly an answer to your question, but you're, I'm, I'm struggling with it. I don't know that I can answer it better than we did last week, but when that inner voice speaks to us, you said, how do we know that it's not God? Remember, I was giving an example sometimes of the way a voice inside of us speaks and asked where did that come from in the character I was reading from. It's clearly the devil. How do we distinguish between that inner voice conscience when it's something evil speaking to us and something divine? Hard, again, a hard question to answer. Well, I mean, one of the things you, that can be said in the voice that I was using, that voice is petulant, defiant, self-serving, you know, proud. And the reason I'm mentioning that right now is one of the things that Melville and Hawthorne shared is this belief in the brotherhood of sin. That what the 
founding Protestant generation did was separate themselves out because all those who were predestined were saved. So when we read Scarlet Letter, you'll see everybody in that community acts as if they're saved. They hate Hester Prim. She's pregnant. She's got an illegitimate child. That's proof that she's among the damned. So they're judging by outward appearances. And they're conforming. They're supporting each other. Melville is shattering that. So was Hawthorne. We'll get to him. Okay? But Melville and Hawthorne both believed in the brotherhood of sin. That it's only when you recognize your sins that you carry them that you can bring something better to the world. Otherwise, you're among the self-righteous, you're saved, and that's the way you present Christ. So, one of the things to keep in mind in the whole overriding action is the question, does Ahab ever come to a point of recognition, which is one of the qualities of the tragic hero, remember? Does he see, or does he remain blind? And Ishmael, who signed up on the quest, Gave, committed himself to it, does he learn to see himself? Yes, he does, repeatedly, and you know that. I mean, we'll see it. Early on, remember, after the, uh, after the chapel chapter, he comes back and um, he says, my heart was softening, my splendored heart was softening because of that cannibal. Remember, um, Quickwick pulled out his money and shared it. He invited him to worship with him. And he felt his heart. So already, early, before he even commits himself to the vengeance, he's learning to see himself different. Remember when he first, when the book started, he said, when I start feeling like I'm bringing up funeral lines and I want to take a gun and shoot people, it's time for me to get out to sea. So there's something wrong. But immediately, his contact with Queequeg begins to open his heart. And that will be the first of many changes in Ishmael's life. Okay. So in Ahab we've got a man who's fixed in his righteousness, who's determined to take vengeance on this thing, get back at him, and Ishmael who commits himself to that quest and then we have to see what happens to him. Okay. But that's the whole of the story. Okay. Let me stop. I want to I go to the readings of those chapters after the town ho up to the Jeroboam. But any questions or comments on what we're doing at this point? I want to reinforce what I said about Fidal in just a second, but any questions? That's a sort of quick overview. I mean, it's just saying what you already know. Yeah, sure. Cheryl, go. Coming up with this comment that I hear throughout, and I don't know when I started hearing this, but in the last five, ten years, people will say, my truths are not, you know, your truths are not. Right. How would they say it? Your truths maybe not be my truths. So they follow their truths. Right. And I've always been stuck on that because when I first heard it, I didn't like it. And then through the years, I went, well, maybe so. <laughs> yeah. But as you're talking tonight, that kind of, all these words, all yep. these phrases are, yep. really get us caught up. Yep. That you really get. Yep. Okay. How do, can anybody, I don't want to get into this because we, we got past apologetics, but very, very briefly, can anybody answer that? 
What's, can anybody give an appropriate response to somebody who says my truth? Or? If you don't feel that there is an ultimate truth, then your truth is as good as anybody else's. But, but we've got to back that up somehow because that's not obvious to the person who's taking that position. How can, how can you make that obvious? If my truth contradicts yours, and there's two contradictory truths, then we've got a problem. And if there's any evidence showing otherwise that something, say, is true, it's been proven, and our truth doesn't conform to that, it says something about our truth. You see, these are some of the things we looked at, particularly in Chesterton and, you know, Lewis, but particularly Chesterton. Relativism can't stand. It can't stand. And skepticism can't stand. There's no truth. Um, if there's no truth, then, then you can't say there's a truth to what you just said, that there's no truth. You know, there, there are sort of simple answers to these, even if people don't. But there are responses to make, um, besides beating somebody over the head. Yeah, I'm trying to steer away from that right now. For yeah. Here, let me touch on that because I'm. I, let me remember when we started reading T.S. Eliot, because it, it's it's a it's a, it's a huge problem. Eliot proselytizes nowhere. After his conversion, a whole intellectual world turned on him, not because he professed anything. You can't find anything in Proofrock or Wasteland or anything explicitly Catholic. I don't want to answer the question, but I want to put it to you. We know in the, Job st the Jonah story, Jonah speaks to the Ninevites and they're converted. And you know that I've been arguing, and we'll pick it up in other chapters, that Ishmael is a Jonah figure. He's fleeing God. He's running away. He gets caught up with the whale. He gets saved by it. He's the only survivor. He comes back to tell us a story. Okay? And let me just say this and then leave it. He doesn't proselytize anywhere. He's not speaking on behalf of any religion because the religion has already shown they're failing. What does he do? And, and you know my position on this because most modern critics are going to say insoluble mystery, inscrutable mystery. You know, that we can't, that's, that's full of confusion and it drives me nuts. If there's anything you can say, and one critic says that Melville is denying a logocentric universe and the presence of a logos in nature. You know the logos is a sign of reason of God ever in the universe. The logos is Christ. He's saying it's, an, it's denying a logocentric universe. This book is one of the most logocentric books I have ever read in my life. I'll, I'll get more and more into that as we go. And there's a logos everywhere. It, Ishmael is in finding intelligibility everywhere. How could he unless it was there? But nowhere when he comes back in the story that we have is he professing God or sending people to God. He's not doing what Mapple did in the chapel. I don't want to get to this now, but the ultimate question that I want to bring to everybody is this is the modern world. We're on the verge of our world. We're getting the modern world right now in so many ways. What does Ishmael come back to tell us? Do we hear it? Lots of people clearly do not. Do we hear it? Would it have been better if he'd said, go back to God? And go back to New England? Or, I mean, I, I don't want to answer it, but keep that question, okay? Because it, as a Jonah, a modern Jonah figure, what does he, he come back to tell us? 
It's a story of woe, it's a tragic story, it's full of sorrows, but I think there's something more. But here, let's look. Here, I want to do one more thing to underline um, Fadala, and then I want to I want to go to those chapters. Go to last time I ended by saying, I asking these questions, who is Fadala? <clears throat> and I think I shocked everybody by saying Chicago or Fadala is a character in his own right. He's Persian, he belongs to that the fire-eating sort of demonic worshiping peoples. And Ishmael has brought him on board hoping he can give power, magical power to his quest. So Ahab has turned himself over to magical powers. Okay. And I asked the question, um, who's Fadala? How do we look at him? And I ended by saying something I think was a little bit shocking to all of you. He's an image of something at the center of Ahab's soul. That is, he's a visual image, tangible, visible image of evil. It gives us an image of Ahab. And I want to get back to that in a second, but before I do, I want to read this. In chapter, uh, or on page 389, hold on, in my book, I really would recommend you guys getting this edition. There's a really good essay at the end of it. Um, <laughs> chapter 70, chapter 73. Ishmael is talking about the whale that they've just captured. It's a right whale. And there's a superstition among some of the men that if you capture a right whale, um, you'll suffer for it. So the superstition is there. Ahab wants it as a prudential matter. He wants it to right the ship because remember they have a, the head of a sperm whale on one side of the ship that's canting it, that's leaning it. So he talks about this, I don't want to go in, but at the end, he, he ends that chapter with this description. This is the end of chapter 73, page 389 in this text. Meanwhile, Fidala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head and ever and anon glancing from the deep wrinkles there to the lines in his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsi, that's another word for Fidala, identifying him where, the, where he comes from, occupied his shadow. While if the Parsi's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. As the crew toiled on, Laplandi speculators, speculations were bandied among them concerning all these things. Now, just before that, um, when Stubb and Flask are talking as they bring the white whale to the Pequod, um, they talk about Fadala, and Flask is the one who keeps asking questions, and, and <laughs> Stubb is the one, he's, remember, he's the hermit, who acts like he has all these answers. Back on 386, it's a couple um, pages earlier. Sink him. I never look at him at all, but even if I get a chance, a dark night, and he's standing hard by the bulwarks, and no one by look down there. Flask, he's pointing down, dark. Um, I will I flask, I take that Fadala to be the devil in disguise. Do you believe that clock and bull story about his having been stowed? Baloney, he says. Blast him, now that I think of it, he's always wanting oakum to stuff into the toes of his boots. Because he thinks in his boots he's got, um, um, what do you call them, the hoofs of the devil. And he's stuffing tobacco in there to, to make up the room. 
He sleeps in his boot, don't he goes on. Go down a few lines. What's the old man have such much to do with him striking up a swap or a bargain? I suppose bargain about what? Why do you see the old man is hard bent after that white whale and the devil there is trying to come round him and get him to swap away his silver watch or his soul or something of that sort and then he'll surrender Moby Dick. Poor Stubb, you are skylarking. He said, how can he can't do that? Stubb proceeds to say when Flash says, how's he going to do that? He says, if that devil ever comes close to me, does fools, gives me lip, gives me any problem, I'll handle, I'll handle him. The next page. Three Spaniards, Adventures of the Three Bloody-Minded Soldados. Did you read it there, Flask? Where did you get this story? No, never saw such a book. Heard of it, though. But now tell me, Stubb, do you suppose that the devil you were speaking of just now was at the same that you say is on board the Pequot? Now, in, in the passage above, it's an allusion to the Job story, and you probably would miss it. It goes... This is, um, I don't know, Flask, but the devil is a curious chap and a wicked one, I tell you. Why they say is, as how he went sauntering into the old flagship, that's heaven, once switching his tail about devilishly easy and um, gentlemanlike and inquiring of the old governor, that's God, asking if God was at home. Well, he was at home and asked the devil what he wanted. The devil switching his hoofs up and says, I want John. That's Job. Okay, the play on words here. What for, says the old governor, God. What business is that of yours, says the devil, getting mad. I want to use him. Take him, says the governor. And by the Lord, Flask, if the devil didn't give John the Asiatic collar before he got through with him, I'll eat this whole whale in one mouthful. Because the devil's saying to God, I'm going to have Jonah. So just for those of you who haven't read it along, remember, the devil goes to God. And God looks at Job as one of his most righteous, and the devil says, no, he's not. And um, let me prove it to you. God gives the devil freedom to tempt Job, and you know from the story, he loses everything. Everything. His family, his possessions. He gets really angry, he challenges God at the end, and God has words for... But that's a play. Now, a couple of things here. All of this seems like fun and games, and, and Flass says, um, let him try to get me. Here. Go down a few paragraphs. Now, if he's as old as all those hoops of yours come to, and he's going, then um, he's going to live forever. 388. Suppose she should take it into his head to duck you, Flat says. I should like to see him try it. I give him such a pair of black eyes that he wouldn't dare to show his face in the Admiral's cabin again for a long time, let alone down in the orlip, the lower deck, there where he lives and hereabouts on the upper deck where he sneaks so much. Damn the devil, Flass. Do you suppose I'm afraid of the devil? Who's afraid of him except the old governor, God, who, dare, who daresn't catch him and put him in double darbies as he deserves, but let him go about kidnapping people, I, and sign the bond with him that all the people the devil kidnap, he, he'll roast him. There's a governor. And he says again and again, let him come at me. I will take him down. Now before I look at those chapters, this is Fadala. But for a moment, what does this... How do you... What do you say about Stubb here? The way he reads the Bible? And his way of dealing with evil?
contemptuous of God and speaks as if he's not afraid of the devil. Um, like he's been disappointed by God or, I don't know, betrayed or something. He's definitely contemptuous. Says that God is afraid. God's afraid of the devil. He's not. Right. And he should have put the devil in chains. By the way, where is the devil in Dante? And his condition? Cold. Frozen. Frozen. What's the difference here? Why, for Dante, has Satan been defeated? Wait a minute, we've done, we've done two Gospels and we did Revelation. So we've seen the battle involving Christ and we know the outcome. What's the difference between Stubbs' understanding of God and the devil and Dante's? Well, he's up and running around on their deck. <laughs> In the flagship. Right. They're with him. Yeah, he's at large and um, capturing, kidnapping people, and then God it, acts like his lackey or servant and roasts them. <coughs> I mean, according to Stubbs, the devil is victorious here, more than God, more powerful. So he doesn't see, I guess, the victory of Christ. Why does Dante, Mary, I'm sorry, you were going to say something? Did you? Yeah. When it comes to these things, like yep. he knows a lot about whales. Yeah. And but he doesn't see anything divine about. Them. Yeah. Remember that I've been saying to you, it, it's one of the it's one of the reasons I have such problems with faith-based movies today, that there's an Aryan quality to the Protestant mind. By you know Aryan, claimed that Christ was all human. That was one of the early heresies. That there's a tendency to overhumanize him, to take away his divinity. One of the things you can say about Stubb here is he has no respect for anything evil. I mean, remember, one of the things I said last night, so I made a couple of claims here. One is, once you turn away from the sacraments, Christianity descends into a moral code. It's a moral code. It's, it's looked at in terms of respectability. If you're respectable, you're, sa you're among the saved. How well does anybody living in that world deal with evil? Can you see it? How do you deal with it? I mean, Mary, spot on. I mean, and she put it beautifully. Um, he, he reduces it to his level. And by the way, wonderful line. Who has the last word on this? At the, well, you don't know. Who has the last word on this? The devil or stub at the end? Is Fadala saved? Or does, does stub defeat him? Every, everybody in the ship goes down. When a man presumes to take on evil that way, does he have any idea? Satan was the highest of God's creation. Flirt with Satan, and you might as well be turning against God um, because he has that kind of power. Why is, why is Satan chained in frozen in ice in Dante? Because Christ defeated him in the death and resurrection. We read that passage when Christ said, you know, new heaven, new earth. Um, 
the moment he defeats him, the whole order of Christianity changes. I, with that, pa that passage in Matthew, go back to it. When Christ says, it's in Matthew. Why does he say, what are his words there with, what I've told you will come, all that I've told you will come before this generation passes? How can he say that? Because he's going to die and come to life again. The minute he does that, a whole new order is brought into the world. How many Christians believe in it? Here's a man who's saying, God's failing. I'm not, I'll take him out. God. <laughs> and how's his reading of scripture? Governor, Job, flagship. That's his reading of the Job story. This guy goes to, Satan goes to the governor and says, I want this guy and I'm going to swallow him in one body, <laughs> which is what Satan does anyway. But is everybody following the parody here? I mean, it, it's stark. It's a stark critique of what happens when people are left to read the Bible alone. Everybody, any questions or? So what was, I mean, Melville didn't want people reading the Bible alone. I know he was against the Puritan mindset, but I mean, was he suggesting we all become Catholic? <laughs> and read with the church or the mind of the church? Or? You're going to have to wait until the end of this book and ask that question again. <laughs> we're not there. And Mary was saying, are we done tonight? I looked at that. Oh, we're not close to being done. I do not want to drag this out. You know that. You asked me if I finished yeah. the book. And I'm like, should I have? No. <laughs> I hope not. No, but we've got... I mean, I, you know that I do not want to, I will not drag this out because I, I, I don't like what it does to people. I'm not going to rush through it. I think we're moving at a good pace, and, but it'll take a couple more. And that, those will be the central questions that we ask when we get to the end. What is Ishmael? What is Melville bringing back to this Christian America that's failing in its calling? Any other questions? Questions before we look at the Ishmael chapters? I don't believe that. <laughs> Doc, do you don't, come on, a question, no? Any? Okay. Okay, let's, I'm going to go to the, um, I'm going to quickly look at the chapters following the townhouse story. I'm going to do this um, relatively quickly. So. so stay with me. Um, it's, it's going to be a very brisk kind of summary. Right after the townhouse story, chapter 55, Ishmael gives us of monstrous, monstrous pictures of whales. Um, sorry, I've got to get myself organized here. Mm. Monstrous pictures of man, whales. This is chapter 55 on our page 320. 
in chapter 55, what he does is go back to the beginning and describe all of these mythic, early mythic um, accounts of whales. He goes back to the ancient Hindus, he goes back to the ancient Egyptians, um, the Jewish people, and all of them, they, they offer a picture of a whale that's a fabulous creature. Now, um, in, the, in the chapter that I just read, where they're talking about the right whale, and it ends with that description about Fidala. In that chapter, I didn't read the passage, but Ishmael makes mention of Locke and Kant. Locke was an empiricist. He believed that the only reality we could know is our senses, what's delivered to our senses. Kant believed that we had innate ideas in our heads and we projected those ideas. So what we see in the world are our own ideas. By the way, that goes directly to this thing um, the chair was talking about. If that's what directs us, if what's in my head is what's real to me, even if somebody else doesn't see it. it. It leaves people in their heads. So Locke is in a world present to our senses. Kant is in a world present to our ideas in our head. And both of them are contradictory. And he's using those as examples of the whale on one side and the whale on And he says, get rid of them. He's quite clear, get rid of them. Here, he's going back to the ancient peoples, and he says on the second page, 319 in my book, as for the bookbinder's whale, um, winding like a vine stalk around the stalk of a descending anchor, as stamped and gilded the way they do up these you know, books, old and new, that is a very picturesque but purely fabulous creature. So the early accounts of the whale were all fabulous mythic. Go on over a page. But quitting all these unprofessional attempts, let us glance at those pictures of Leviathan purporting to be sober scientific. And he describes the scientist's presentation of whales. So he's setting off the mythic against the scientific. But he concludes on the next page, all these are not only incorrect, but the picture of the mysticetus uh, or Greenland whale, that is to say the right whale, even Scoresby, a long experienced man as touching that species, declares not to have its counterpart in nature. So even the scientists miss. Okay, 56. Now hold on. We've just encountered, remember, the quarter deck. Then we got Moby Dick with all of its marvelous properties Ishmael gave us. Then we got the whiteness of the whale, this mysterious power it seems to have. Okay, then we got the town of story, this what seems to be a providential act on God's part to save a man. And now we're getting Ishmael's account. So we got all these stories dealing with metaphysical issues in some way, and now we're getting all these accounts that people have of the whales. 56 of the less erroneous pictures of whales and the true pictures of whaling scenes. I, this is 56. I know of only four published outlines of the great sperm whale, Colnitz, Huggins, Frederick um, Cuviers, and Beals. In the previous chapter, Colnitz, Colnitz <coughs> and um, Cuvier have been referred to. Huggins is better than theirs, but by great odds, Beals is the best. He'll go on to describe why it's better, because it's more faithful to actually what goes on. Um, and he says, towards the end of that chapter, 
The natural aptitude of the French for seizing the picturesqueness of things seems to be peculiarly evinced in what paintings and engravings they have of their whaling scenes. So even though the French have no contact, they're not a, they're not a coast nation, they seem to be better at representing the whale than these other people. Chapter 57 of whales in paint, teeth, wood, sheet iron, stone, goes on. He begins by describing this man who lost his leg, who gives a picture of the event, and he takes that as true, as a true representation of what happened. He says, but though forever mounted on that stump, never stump speech, he doesn't get up to make a stump speech to make things of it like politicians do all the time. Does the poor whaleman make, but with downcast eyes stands ruefully con contemplating his own amputation. We can trust his picture because he experienced it and suffered from it. Chapter 55, the Brit. It's this, as he describes it, um, it's this yellow substance upon which the right whale largely feeds. For leagues and leagues it undulates around us so that we seem to be sailing through boundless fields of ripe golden wheat. Um, this is chapter 58. And it's here in one of, one of these statements that, that he makes repeatedly. He describes the effect of the Brit, as you look at it, as a meadow. It's so peaceful and calm and, um, what's the word? Quiet, I'm missing the word, but tranquil. You know, it's, but he says at the end of that chapter, but not only is see such a foe to man who's an alien to it, but it's also a friend to its own offspring, worse than the Persian host who murdered his own guests, sparing not the creatures which itself had spawned. Like a savage tigress that tossing in the jungle overlays her own cubs, so the sea dashes even the mightiest whales against the rocks and leaves them there side by side with the split wrecks of ships. No mercy, no power, but its own controls it, panting and snorting like a mad battle steed that has lost its rider. The masterless ocean overturns the globe. He goes down to the very end. For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, remember, land's our home, where we belong. So in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti full of peace and joy but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. God keep thee, push not off from that isle, thou canst never return. Um, 60 of the line, he describes two harpoons that are towards the bow of the boat after the harpooners made his first cast and, they, and they're supposed to followed up with other casts to make sure the whale gets killed. But he says, sorry? Did you skip 59? Mm -hmm. I'm skipping okay. some, yeah. Right. I'm not going to do everything. See, I'm trying to, I just want to get a picture here. You're at 60? Um, right now we're on 60. So he describes the line by which these harpooners are attached to the boat. And he says, thus the whale line folds the whole boat in its complicated coils twisting and writhing around it in almost every direction. So once the first harpooner makes his cast, there are other two harpooners that are tied by these lines. And sometimes because the, of the jerk of the boat when the whale takes it or waves, the line will start twisting and coiling and it's got this sharp harpoon on it. Um, so he says, they seem as Indian jugglers with the deadliest snakes supportively festooning their limbs with all these twists. At the end of 60, 
Again, is the profound, profound calm which only apparently proceeds in prophecies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself, for indeed the calm is but the wrapper and an envelope of the storm, contains in itself the seemingly harmless rifle holes, the fatal power and the ball and the explosion. So the graceful repose of the line as it silently serpentines about the oarsman before being brought into actual play, this is a thing which carries more of true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live enveloped in whale lines, all are born with halters round their necks, but it's only when caught in the swift sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. So, he says, we all live in them. Remember, his presentation is, on the surface, thing look, things look good. When you look at America today, in our, with all of our comfort, security, money, wealth, suburbia life, everything has the appearance of goodness. Look at the news, <laughs> making the headlines every day, and set it against that outward appearance. So what is Ishmael doing? I don't want to just, again, here he is meditating on something. In this case, it's the line and um, draws an analogy. It's at this point that Stubb kills a whale and, um, and, um, and then eats. Turn to 64. This is wonderful. 64. Stubb's whale had been killed some distance from the ship. It was a calm, so forming a tandem of three boats, we commenced the slow business of towing the trophy to the Pequod. So they have all these men doing this on page 351, a second page in. A stake, a stake, ere I sleep, you, Dagu, overboard you go, and cut me one from the small. So he has to go below it and, and risk the sharps to get stub his meat. 352, about midnight that stake was cut and cooked and lighted by two lanterns of sperm oil. <laughs> Some people think that's an insult added to injury. Stubb stoutly stood up to his spermaceti supper at the capstan head, as if that capstan were a sideboard. Nor was Stubb the only banqueter on whale's flesh that night, mingling their mumblings, listen to this line, mingling their mumblings with their own his own mastications, thousands of the thousands of sharks swarming round the dead leviathan, smackingly fasted on, feasted on its fatness. If that is an alliteration at its height, I don't know what it is. Um, he, he asked this question because, and it troubles him because he says, the sharks go at it and what they do is lead this bull-like effect from their, how in the world they can, you know, do that without chapping, but they don't. They just go at it and leave these big bull-like em empty pockets in their place. He's trying to eat his dinner, but he can't. He can't eat it comfortably. It's, his dinner is spoiled because the sharks are making all this noise. On page 353, uh, two pages later, blast me if I can hear my own voice. Away, cook, and deliver my message. Here, take this lantern with whale oil. Snatching rum from the sideboard. Now, then, go and preach to him. Suddenly taking the offered lantern, old fleece limped across the side. He goes, and he um, goes out to preach to the sharks. He's a very Christian He's very Christian in his obedience. Fellow critters, as I ordered here to say that you must stop that damn noise there. You hear? Stop that damn smacking. Oh, dip, dip. Master Stubb, say that you 
can fill your damn bellies up to do the hatching, but by God, you must stop that damn racket. <laughs> cook here interposed Stubb, accompanying the word with a sudden slap on the cook. Why, damn your eyes, you mustn't swear that way when you're preaching. This is the guy who just gave us the Jonah story, by the way. Um, swear that way when you're preaching. That's no way to convert sinners, cook. <laughs> I hope you're all... Remember the parody that started at home in Nantucket and with Maple, Hussey, Coffin, Bildug, Peleg. It's still on board. I mean, it's now on board. That's no way to convert sinners, cook. Who dat? Then preach to him yourself. Suddenly he turned me to go. No cook, go on, go on. Well then, beloved, <laughs> beloved fellow critters, right, exclaimed Stubb approvingly. Coax him to it. Try that, and please contain. Do you always all sharks and by nature wary voracious? Yet I'd say to you, fellow critters, that that voraciousness, dot that damn slap in the tail. How you think to hear? Suppose you keep up such damn slapping and biting there? Cook cried stuff, collaring. I won't have the swearing. Oh, God. <laughs> Not swearing will make you more Christian. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, the cook goes on like that, and finally, um, He's not successful. The, the sharks continue to eat. Three, page 355, a page later. Come back, cook. The cook is disgusted and angry. Not only at the sharks now, but stub. Come back, cook. Here, hand me those tongs. Now take that bit of steak there and tell me. If you think that steak cooked it, he wants his steak to be just exactly as he wants. The sharks aren't cooperating. The cook's not cooperating. Take it, I say, holding the tongs toward. Take it and taste it. Faintly smacking his... Withered lips over it for a moment, the old Negro muttered, Best cooked steak I ever taste. Juicy, berry, juicy. Cook said, Stub, do you belong to the church? <laughs> Passed one once in Cape Town, said the old man sullenly. And you have once in your life passed a holy church in Cape Town where you doubtless heard a holy person addressing his here and his beloved fellow creatures. Have you cooked? He's saying, you're such a hypocrite. I mean, you've passed these churches and you can't do better than this. Um, <clears throat> finally, um, fleece went, or the cook will have nothing to do with him. You expect to go out to a main top, do you cook when you're dead? But don't you know the higher you climb, the colder it gets? Main top, huh? Didn't say that at all, said Fleece again, the sulks. And, he, and Coral, or um, Stubb asks you, at, um, ask him again what you're doing. All detention, said the old black with both hands placed as desired, vainly wriggling his grizzled head as if to get both ears in front and one in the same time. He can't stand it anymore. But Fleece had hardly gotten three paces off when he walks away, when he was recalled. Cook, give me cutlets for supper. Tomorrow night in the midwatch to hear away you sail then. Hello, stop. Make a bow before you go. A vast heaving again. Whale balls for breakfast. Don't forget. Wish by gore we'll eat, <laughs> we'll eat him. <laughs> Instead of him eat whale. I'm breast if he ate more of a shark than massa shark himself, muttered the old man, limping away with such sage ejaculation he went to his Now I'm gonna just read one more thing and then I, I wanna stop. Sixty-six. Um, the shark massacre that Stubb could not quiet is presented visually, I mean um, concretely. Sixty-six. Sometimes, especially upon the line of the Pacific, this plan will not answer at all because such incalculable hosts of sharks gather around the moored carcass that were left um, so for six hours, say, on a stretch, 
little more than skeleton would be visible by morning. In most other parts of the ocean, however, where these fish do not so largely abound, their wondrous veracity can be at times considerably diminished. Um, go down. Nevertheless, upon stub setting the anchor watch after a supper was concluded, when accordingly Queequeg and a fork castle seamen came on deck, no small excitement was created among the sharks for immediately spending the cutting stages over the side, lowering three lanterns so that they cast long gleams of light over the turbid sea. These two mariners, darting their long wailing spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks by striking the keen steel deep into their skulls, seemingly their only vital part. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling hosts, the marksmen could not always hit their mark, thus brought about new revelations of the incredible ferocity of the foe. They viciously snapped not only at each other's disembowelments, but like flexible bows bent round and bit their own, till those entrails seemed swallowed over again. So all that they're taking in and they're excreting, they're biting off. So they're eating themselves in their own extra, they're feasting off themselves and so in a sort of cannibalistic way devouring themselves. Till those entrails seem swallowed over and over again by the same mouth to be opposedly voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. A sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones after what might be called the individual life had departed. Killed and hoisted on deck for the sake of his skin, one of these sharks almost took poor Queequeg's hand off when he tried to shut down the dead lid of the murderous jaw. Queequeg, no, no care what God made him shark, said the savage, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down. Whether Fiji God or Nantucket God, but the God that made the shark must be one damn engine. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I, I'd like to go to the blanket. Um, because it's a it's a it's a wonderful story, if you remember, where Queequeg is describing um, the whale and the blubber because it's so thick. And by the way, I, I put a site, I gave a Google site at the end of the, my notes so you could look at it. I googled mammal whale. It's a wonderful site showing you pictures of the whale and the skeleton. Ishmael at one point says that scientists who try to look at the skeleton to to configure it, get it all wrong because the skeleton doesn't match the configuration of the whale at all. It's so different. Look at the, Google it and just see. But in the blanket, he's described as a mammal. He's warm-blooded, not a fish. So he, he, he's protected by his coating when he goes to the equator where it's hot, and he's protected by his coat when he goes to the um, extremes, you know, under the polar ice caps. And, and Ishmael's last words of that chapter, the blanket, are wonderful words. Um, so he's described this whale in its amazing ability to go in any, whatever circumstances, he's indifferent. He, he can manage whatever the, whatever the circumstances. He ends to me saying, or ends this um, chapter saying, this is 68, it does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality and the rare virtue of thick walls and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. O man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou too remain warm among ice. Do thou too live in a world without being of it. How long have we heard that growing up? 
to be in the world without being of it? Be cool at the equator, keep thy blood fluid at the pole, like the great dome of St. Peter's. It's another positive allusion to Catholicism. What are we going to do with it? And like the great whale, retain, O man, in all seasons a temperature of thine own. But how easy and how hopeless to teach these fine things. Of erections, how few are domed like St. Peter's. Of creatures, how few vast as the whale. So let me just stop in the remaining time. So here are my questions. Up to the quarter deck um, and the first lowering, there was a clear action. Things were happening. I mean, in, in a modern Hollywood sense, people were taking action. Things were happening. It was in the first lowering that we saw um, Fadala come out. So what was in shade was brought forth. Um, so up to then, um, there's this action. And then we get the town host story in which the, um, the Ahab Moby Dick story is reversed. Steel Kilt is saved. Or, yeah, he's saved from being damned by Moby Dick. And in the subsequent section of 10, 15 <coughs> chapters, we get, um, there's no action. Nothing's happening except the shark massacre. And I want to come to that. But how do we describe what's happening? Up, leave out the shark massacres. I want to come to that separately. Up to the, up to the um, stub getting the wheel and eating the dinner. Describe what's happening. Nothing in the way of action like the first section is going on. How do we describe it? What's going on? Flush that out, Mary. Um, I guess they're just getting ready in case something does happen. Hoping something does happen. The Sphinx chapter, which I didn't read, is a it's a beautiful chapter. It's Ahab looking at the the whale and saying, He has gone to the depths of the sea, he has seen what nobody else has seen. That he has a knowledge that no other creature, and he, he, there's not anything. He goes under the ice, he goes to the equator, he goes everywhere, he goes to the bottom of the sea, the treasures that are there, there's nothing he hasn't seen. And he, and he says, oh, these linked analogies, that you've seen the connection between all these sort of earthly things and all these other things. In almost every one of the chapters we just read, Ishmael is describing something. It's a reflection on Ishmael's part. And so often he sees a, a connection between what's going on in whaling and something else. The line, we're all wrapped in lines. Um, the quote, quote, B is the whale, you know, B. I mean, you can pick out every chapter, but what's going on in those chapters? Is it just, is the action stopped? Is it the calm before the storm? I think it's a description of everybody involved as far as how man's there, what man can do, and his fellow man, what they're capable of doing. So it's a, it's a description of kind of where it's all going. Same way with the whale. The whale is out there. You're being talked about with that, how this is all going to come together. But you got to have a description of everybody so that you can complete the story because you're widening the branch right now. And then you can bringing it back to it. So the impression that, that he gave to me is uh, 
Dylan, you know, he's describing the whale so nice, you know, he's, he's putting the whale as a creature that's on top of other creatures, that when you read the chapter on how they kill it, it makes me sick. You know, like, yeah. animals, I mean, yeah. animals are great. <laughs> Who's and they're being butchered, like, horribly, yeah. so. They're setting up a whale as, as a tragic creature. They're almost giving humanity to Weird, Say it again. They're almost giving a humanity to the Oh. And, and especially Anthropomorphizing, the, giving yeah. a human quality to. And, and, that, and so they're setting them up to see that. He's a, the, the whale himself is obviously their thing. Let me put the question more directly. What's the difference between Ahab at this point in the story and Ishmael? In the way they encounter their world. Ishmael's doing it with wonder. Ahab is doing it with a vengeance to get one Yeah. 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 You know how you said in Hopkins' poems, the first eight lines are the image and the next six are the reflection? Mm -hmm. It's like Ishmael's giving us that. Images and then at the end, a reflection, a metaphor for humanity and versus nature versus divinity and so there's not much action it's like what he talks about um, the peaceful meadow but underneath there are currents of things happening stay away it's evil yeah he yeah. has to show us sort of the undercurrents so that we understand the whole yeah I want to is there no action why because we're so American Yes, there's the of the whale. I mean, Wait, sorry, who, somebody online? Melody, go ahead. Or Anne. Harvest, harvesting, I feel like everybody's harvesting the whale. It's, it's the, they're all feeding on it, everybody is. Yeah. Except uh, Ahab. Yeah. Melody, did you have a thought? I did. Um, I, I saw the transition go from the whale being um, the savage to the whale being <laughs> Um, the image of something um, victim godlike but yeah. something oh. to be honored right. and, and that like in the chapter uh, of whales in paint he starts talking about the, the whalemen being the savages and then at, at, in town ho that's when the whale became more of a savior than a savage doing the right thing, the picture of justification, and then ever since that town both chapters, the whale has been in a better, better, better light, and yeah. men are the ones who are the savage. Melanie, let me go back to your comment last week, because um, yeah. I've really enjoyed it. You, you know, you said you really enjoyed going back and rereading it and realizing none of us can read Moby Dick in high school. I mean, God, it just, we're too young, too dumb. Um, and, and the sad thing is that people who've read it in high school say, when they're 60 years old, they say, I read it. And it we need to read it <laughs> as we grow older. But, but I, I enjoyed your comment when you said, oh, and I get to Ishmael, and you were, you know, ready, you know, wringing your head. What's your response to Ishmael? Is there no action going on in these 10, 12 chapters? What's Ishmael doing that Ahab is not? How, how did you, because I know you were concerned about Ishmael. How do you see Ishmael in these chapters? along the way he's seeing that the whale um, the, 
more prized um, creature of God than these men are. You can see the faults in them, and the whale is becoming a better and better, I hate to say person, but a better image. Yeah. So that is the change. The action I see is all in Ishmael's way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, the action in the, that section is an action of the mind reflecting. I, I do not, in America, go to a movie today. Action, it's 90% it's, it's shooting or cars or chase scenes or, you know, I mean, it's all external. Show me, I mean, we've seen two, I thought The Judge was a good movie and I thought um, Departures, to me, was just one of my favorites. It's almost impossible to see an American movie going inward and valuing thought, meditation, reflection. The action in this central scene is a setup. I go back to the... Um, Movie Dick chapter where they talked about how mysterious it was and the whiteness of the whale just set up. In all these chapters, you're watching Ishmael reflect. It's the action of the mind. Is Ishmael is Ahab doing any reflecting at all? It's an it's an amazing tribute to the value of thought, to the worth of thought. Wait, hold, so, so the action is all inward, and think about what he's doing. He's critiquing science, he's critiquing philosophy, Locke, Hobbes, he's already critiqued Descartes and Plato. He's taking those philosophers on, he says, stay away from those men, there's things wrong with them. He's showing how knowledgeable is about thinkers and what they do with the world, their effect on people. Um, he's, he's describing artistic representations and showing some are good and some are bad. Look at artworks today who treat reality. Go to, go to television or movies. How many artworks do you watch today of a movie are faithful to do justice to the depth of evil in the world? Number one. Because I'm going to say Melville is doing that. How many movies do justice to the depths of evil in the world and justice or love to answer it? The answer to most problems in the modern American movie is vengeance. It's strike back and get back. Ishmael is evaluating everywhere. He's setting things against each other to show, to show us what other people are doing with whales and where they're missing. So in one sense, he's gaining our trust. He's learning. Is Ishmael, is anybody else on board that ship learning? God, you guys have been here for three years. It knocks me over sometimes. What I mean that you're even here amazes me. What have you been doing for? Sorry, what have you been doing for? Is there anybody on that ship learning? No, I feel like Ishmael is having an awareness. He keeps going over as the rest of them are kind of in their everyday their jobs and they're just going through the motions and not yeah. seeing it as he grows and becomes yeah. more aware. But that was his whole mission when he got on the ship. Yeah. To get away from land and get away right. from his... But I think it opened way. it more than he ever expected. Yes. The ocean is teaching yes. him so much. And I'm going to go a step farther. Just it seemed, I, I, I love these chapters. I'm, I'm laughing because Melody was ringing. Because I, I remember the first time I read it. Who wants to read about a line or Brit or... You know, I mean, I don't know how many readings it took me to get past that, Melody. I'm saying it sort of honestly. But I look at them now, they are things of such beauty to me right now because we're watching a mind, and here's, here's, here's what, what I want to understand. We're watching a mind find goodness in being. He can't look at anything without finding goodness. 
What's, what's Ish, or Ahab's and the Protestant mind on nature? Melville's doing an extraordinary thing right now. We're going to get to it at the end when I say, what does he bring back? The Protestant mind looks at nature and finds what? Evil. It's an inherently fallen world. It's corrupt. If it's corrupt, why not attack it? The, the two Protestant divines, nature is, man has no free will, nature is, by, in essence, evil. Ishmael's looking out in this world, and he can't look at anything, a line, squid. He's facing the evil of things very clearly. He sees it and presents it to us, and he finds goodness all around him. He's, he's teaching us to see the world as it is, and to trust him, because he takes such pains with it. Without this section, it goes back to the way that a high schooler sees it. They go out on vengeance to get the white whale, and the whale kills them all. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. The, go ahead. The, the, the point I want to underscore is it's important to see that where nothing is going, seems, nothing seems to be going on. It's not in terms of the action of a, of a business enterprise being successful. If I can underscore it that way. It's not a business enterprise being successful. There's somebody doing something in his mind, thinking about it, that's offering a different way of viewing the world from anything else going on in that ship. He did. I mean, he's a good man. Yeah, how he looked at everything. I yeah. Opened him up also once he but remember, remember, in the allegory, you've got Ahab and you've got the mates. Well, you've got Ahab and Fadala. I'm going to take one minute with that before we leave. We've got Ahab and Fadala. I want to go back. You've got the mates, um, Starbuck, um, Stubb, Flask, who are white, reflective, presumably educated somewhat, and you've got the harpooners who are native, who are not reflective. What, what Melville is showing us is, in some sense, the natural man. And it's his goodness. But the inability of the natural man to deal with evil. And Stubbs' parody, I mean, I, I love that. It, it, I mean, it, it, it almost, while I laugh at it, it just... I mean, it leaves me pained, you know, that he looks at Fadal and evil as if he can just, you know, take on the devil and slap her around. Um, I, I'm, I'm too old. I mean, if evil's been so much a part of my life in literature and, I mean, personally knowing it, you know, and encountering it in our world. I've said this to you guys before. You do not want to play around with Satan. You just do not. And Stubb is passing it off. Here, one last thing before we go, and then I, I, let me... When you think about, when you think about Fadala, because I, I think last class when I made that statement, a lot of you were a little bit shocked and said, when I said Fadala's an image. Hold on to this. If you read Shakespeare, the modern world begins with the Reformation and the scientific revolution. 16th, 17th century, 16th, 17th century is the beginning of the modern world. We've been in this modern world for four centuries. It's nothing, it, the beginnings of it were already there. When you turn away from the Trinity and into it, remember when we were in Dante's, the Divine Comedy, when we were going up the Paradiso, Dante began using those reflexive verbs 
I am endowing you, God is in-godding you, you are in me. He, it was a way of showing that they were indwelling with each other because the more you approach God, the more you approach the condition of the Trinity. I've been saying this now for a year and a half. If we're made in the image of God and we're called to love, it means suffering each other's sins. Is that going on in the Christian community back in Nantucket? Um, if everybody's inherently evil, and you're already willed to do that, in what way do you grow spiritually in that person? A marriage means you take on each other's burdens. You help get each other better. I don't know that that can happen without a cross. It's just my own thought on it. But, but an indwelling takes place. The church says our whole point is to become one in marriage. Some, and sometimes the church will give annulments. I mean, the, the church, but it will be the church or Christ saying, separate. But our call is to be one. Okay. What happens in the Renaissance when we break from Christianity and we lose that notion of indwelling is this phenomenon called doubling that takes place. And very often the hero will have a double. Um, Dick, if you've read Dickens' um, Tale of Two Cities, Carlson the hero has a double. It's only because he has that double that he can pull off what he does at the end. He's an absolute double. In um, one of Shakespeare's um, Coriolanus, I think it was Coriolanus, there's a double of the hero. If you're going to, if you live in, if you've lost, here, this is a long point, so bear with me for a second. If you've turned from a view of final ends, the way we did in the 16th century, because Dante was the last real view of final ends, you're in, final ends are heaven, hell, and if you no longer judge things or see things in terms of final ends, you're stuck in the world. If you no longer have that to help you, what do you use for your judgments? The modern world, particularly in its reformation for is respectability. If you live in a respectable world, how do you image evil? How do you deal with it? We've already seen Stuck won't, Stubb won't deal with it at all. He's going to take the devil on. You deal with it by an image, a double. If Ahab's a respectable man, and he is, how do you show the evil in him? How do you visualize it? Shakespeare did it easily with, with Iago, because Iago was completely evil. But how do you show the evil in a man, particularly in a world when we're given to outward appearances? We judge each other by outward appearances. I'm trusting that everybody in this room knows spiritual evils within themselves. Maybe it's just speaking for myself. But that we all have this interior world. Christ called us out of that surface world. When he was said to the Jews, you've, had, you've heard it said, you know, um, not to murder, I'm telling you, you don't hate. You've heard it said, adultery, I'm telling you, you lust for a woman. The whole push of Christ was towards the interior. We've got to change who we are inside. No foulness hits us from outside. It's the foulness from within us that we're supposed to be taking care of. That's the call of the Christian life. How do you image that in a book? Are you following? The difficulty is tremendous. How do you hold, how do you hold on? In Shakespeare, Posthumus was the character's name, or Carlton in, in Dickens' um, Tale of Two Cities. How do you hold on to the dignity of somebody as good as Ahab? Because he was a noble man. How do you hold on to that dignity and still show the evil in him? How do you do justice to the outward appearance of all of us 
because all of us seem to be good outwardly and still give some sense of that evil inside. Hawthorne said, we, Hawthorne said in somewhere, because they didn't have confession, he said, give some indication of the bad in yourself. Because if you don't, you'll get stuck in this righteous sense of yourself. So everybody following. So the whole role of Fadala in this story is not small. He's an image of something that, take, that takes possession of Ahab's soul when he, when he commits himself to that quest and uses that inverted mass to make it sacramental. So the depth of evil we're facing right now is not small. And Ahab, or Melville, is doing everything he can to, to be faithful to the world as it appears to us and still make us aware of something else. Sorry, you were going to... That's okay. It just reminded me of uh, the picture of Dorian Gray or Jekyll and Hyde. There's also doubles. Yeah, you know. right. Yeah. That's so modern, the schizophrenia that we're... I need the chair. Oh. You'll take this out. Oh, here, you... Oh. Yeah. Let me, let, wait, let me, but I don't want to rush. Any questions, comments? Because there's a lot going on here, and I don't want to... My favorite was when they threw the ginger tea overboard. And the quick egg was in the water, and they gave him ginger tea. Because the entire chapter... That was, that was I don't want to lose you guys online. Melody or Anne or, or Lori, any... Do you guys have any questions or comments to? Because we're we're hitting the. I, I hope, I hope I hope everybody is seeing the plot here. Can I have your attention? Just two more minutes. Can I can I have your attention, Cheryl? Can I just can you wait? Cheryl, can you wait just a second? What I'd like everybody to see is this: there's a growing tension. The evil is getting deeper. We've just, when Ahab loses his soul and Fadala comes on board, and I just read you that passage, the evil is getting deeper. We're asked to look at evil in its depths, and something's going on in Ishmael that's seeing the goodness of being. There's a real tension taking place in the action of the movie, and part of it's invisible. We don't see an action with Ishmael. What we're watching is his mind. This ability to see goodness and evil as they are. So we've got the Ahab story, on one level, and we've got Ishmael enclosing it. It's in, remember, it's not in Ishmael. We're in, Ish, we're in Ishmael's mind. Everything we get is through him. So it's important to see that the Ahab story is contained in him. And what he's learning to see is this goodness to things. And to see things as they are. He does, he does not mince word. I mean, the thing that he does with the shark massacre, what he's showing is there's something sharkish in humans. That's an image of us on this. We're, we're going after whales and we're disemboweling ourselves. We're actually undercutting ourselves. That's the effect of a business enterprise that is trying to exploit nature, to make it serve them or us. So right now, this is the action is deepening. Okay, let me stop. I'm sorry, because I, I, some of you may have had thoughts or... So Ishmael is telling the story 
after everything, he's experienced everything, yeah. he comes back and tells us. So in these chapters where he's reflecting and thinking, we're seeing his, how he's processing the thing after it happened. Ahab does not have the luxury of doing that. So he may not... Is that the right way to put him? I mean, he does he really want... If he had the luxury, would he have done it differently? No, no. You may not. I cannot ask what might have been. <laughs> okay, go ahead. But um, I'm wondering, while it was happening, was Ishmael that self-aware? Was he that thoughtful? Clearly he came back. This was his first whaling trip. He didn't know much about whales. But clearly he came back and did a ton of research and learned all about whales and looked up images and the history and the skeleton. Or encountered it in his life. I mean, what... Well, how, after this first... I mean, right. since yeah, this first voyage, on the first voyage, he didn't know much. This was a long voyage, though, too. And who knows how many years have elapsed. I don't know. I haven't gotten to the end. I don't know if he ever says. But I'm just pointing out that this this growth and this, this observance and deepening of, of his understanding may have come with time and may not have been at the very moment. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, you probably missed it, but I, and I don't know when it was, but it may have been last week or a couple of weeks ago when you were here, but I made a point of saying that the basic problem of the book was one of reading, yeah. and we had to keep two Ishmaels together and remember that there's the, like Dante, the pilgrim, there's the voyager, the Ishmael, that is the whaler goes out, and the man who comes back, and one of the things we have to, that modern, I mean, the modern readers of this just appall me. Um, the Ishmael who comes back is a man who has survived a miracle. How does that color his perception? So it's, it's there's, and, and the act of writing. Because in the story, remember I told you, where do we get the Cetology story chapter in his voyage? Where do we get any of it? Some of that stuff did not occur, it wasn't an act an event, an activity, an action, and his voyage. So the Ishmael we're getting is the Ishmael who's being faithful to a voyage and also offering something. And we, can't, we cannot account for that until we get to the end. And then say, what did he bring back from the miracle? Can we even identify it? Can we specify it? Because not everything in the book took place on the... Everything in the book took place on the voyage. So. One, I've said it, the, this book is fundamentally about reading. Look at the way the Protestant reads the Bible. Look at the way these characters read the Bible. Look at the way they read nature. Ishmael's come back to tell us something. Look at the way we read him. This is so much about the way, look at the way Ahab reads nature. What happened to him? And how much of the way he reads it was a product of his theology. Things are predetermined, you can't escape them, there's this evil in the world. Stubby even puts it down. I mean, that is, I, it, it's laughable. I can't read that without feeling a pain. I mean, just to see a man flaunt God and the devil that way, it's scary. But here we are talking about these characters but it's really the writer that creates this whole thought that we got. Yeah, but the question is, is, is he being faithful to a whaling voyage, to whales, to what happens to... No, but you? Yes, but it's still the writer that's 
we're assuming Isabel is telling us the story, but it's the writer telling us the whole story. So it's, it's more like you say, uh, reading, but it's also by writing. So the person who wrote this, yeah. we have to interpret his yeah, writing. It's not necessarily the story that's being told. Well, I guess it is because the, the writer yeah. is the story. Remember that Melville is, is the writer, but he chose Ishmael as the vehicle, the instrument by which to tell this, that, that in itself says, we talked about it. Why does this guy begin by saying, call me Ishmael? That's a telling opening. Anyway, let's stop. Um, we are in the depth of a real conflict here between the, the depth of something really evil, very evil, and somebody who's learning to grapple with it. Okay. Okay. Um, See you all, and I hope we see you next week. And I'm glad finally, um, Lori and Melody, we could. Two weeks. Not two weeks. Two weeks. Oh, two weeks. Um, I hope we, I'm glad we could finally end the meeting with you guys still online. <laughs> anyway, have a good Easter. Chuck! Yeah. Have a good Have a good Lent and Easter. I, I'm, I'm good, Bob. Okay. Thank you. Don't forget stuff there. Yeah, I won't. All right. I won't. Okay, have a nice evening. You too, both of you.